Oh, I always like bad guys, so um, and eventually I'd like to do a big book on bad guys. Well, big also, I mean big in size, you know, not only in amount of pictures, but in the length and the width, because I think the pictures look good large. Magnum photographer Bruce Gilden has photographed a lot of big bad guys, most famously Yazuka gangsters for his book Go. This summer, he went to Russia to take pictures of some tattooed bad guys who live in the middle of nowhere in Siberia. The bad guys that are left, you know, they still call themselves bad guys or could be called bad guys are, you know, obviously not the highest level guys. So the fixer that I found through somebody... Uh, he found guys in Yetkaterinburg or Siberia. We only went further into Siberia because Yetkaterinburg's right on the cusp of Siberia, okay? If you drive uh, 20 minutes, you're in Asia, okay? I mean, he drove me there like big deal, you know, when you see another birch tree. So, uh, so many trees. So, so many bodies. So, he found a couple of groups of guys for me, all right? And one group was this guy, Sergei, who's great. And I love Sergei. Here, one second. There's Sergei. My Sergei, look, look, Sergei. He's a killer. He's great, Sergei, look. See all the Kremlin, the yeah. tattoos from being in prison 14 of the last 17 years, I see. And here he is. I love the shirt he's wearing, which is like a real uh, universal mafia-type shirt. And he's smoking a cigarette. He's got his hand with, you know, tattoos with the cigarette in the air. And, he, you know, he's got the attitude of a big uh, mafia don. So I like that one. Another one I like very much. Um, <laughs> yeah, this was on a... Well, here's Sergey. We were in the car with him on a... This was a couple of days before I left to go home. So I'd been there about two weeks now already. And, and, and yet Katarinaburg and the environs. And... He's drunk. And Sergei, when he gets in his car and he starts to drive, then you could start to, because he has no license. And when I was there, he was drunk and driving. I wasn't with him that night. It was a Saturday night. And that day, two cops had gotten killed, or one killed and one wounded, not by him. So you had a lot of police presence all over. And he, um, he stopped, of course. He was drunk and he has no license because he knows all the cops, but he didn't know these young ones. And then they said, where's your license? And he didn't have any, so he had to run away, and he knocked over a shed or something and fences, and he's got cuts all over. And then at 2 o'clock when he, he figured, this happened about 7 o'clock in the evening when everything was cool, you know, and copacetic, so, you know, he can go back. He went back to his car, and he drove home. It's my boy. I love Sergey. He's, like, supposedly the watcher. In other words, anything that goes on in his area, he supposedly gets a cut of or what have you. But, you know, having said that, you know, Sergei is also known as Kaban, which is the wild boar. And I think Sergei is 33 years old. He's been in prison five times. He spent a total of 14 years behind bars for various offenses, including fights, robbery, and stealing. Last time he fell for trying to protect his mother and causing severe injuries to her offender. Um... When he's drunk, his friend said a destroyer wakes up inside him, and this is f***ing the end for all. He never hits with his fist twice, because once is enough, explained his friend. He also, he also told me that his friend said it's great. His friend said that um, the elephants puke when he starts to fight. 
because they get frightened. I mean, he's a scary guy physically. I mean, I loved him, and we got along, you know. See, I, I, I have him yelling here. To me, that's what it's like to probably live in a village like this in the middle of nowhere in 2010, you know, because it must be a horror show. I mean, what do you do? You sit there and you drink vodka, you, you take care of your cabbage patch, you know, you have your dog, um, and uh, there's not much to do. So tell me about one of these that you know for sure will go in your big well, book of book. bad guys. Yeah, this will go in the book, The Gouging of the Eye. That's Dimitri, he's gouging his eye out. That just happened because um, he felt like putting his finger in Dimitri's eye, which is, I guess is a normal, natural thing to do, you know, with your friends. I do it all the time. Like, Benjamin, come here one second. Um, and... That's how, and that's his wife, Julia, in the back, who's laughing a little, because I said, can you hold that a little bit so I make sure I get the picture? And, you know, poor Dimitri is losing his eye. <laughs> Not really, but he, he did. Um, you know, when Sergei plays, I wouldn't want to be the playmate of Sergei on the other end. Bruce Gilden's big book of bad guys will come out someday. I was in Russia this summer as well, and I met another photographer who's worked in Siberia. Ivan Boyko spent most of his 20s photographing a Siberian Old Believer community. The Old Believers are kind of like the Amish people of Russia. In 1667, the original OBs split from the Russian Orthodox Church, and today they still follow the old traditions, living in close-knit, closed-off communities. All believers in Russia are something very special special because they refuse to change. They are really different people. These are people who both inherit um, uh, how say Russian Christianity, the Byzantical way, and they inherit the philosophical point of view on uh, life and ways of living, uh, medieval way, and they are the keeping of uh, spoken and literary tradition uh, of Russia before the church reform of the end of 17th century. A French publisher put out a book of Ivan's photos. He gave me a copy when I met with him in Moscow. It's a great book. The photos all show a world that seems to exist beyond time. For old believers, the world outside their borders is a world of the Antichrist, a world to be avoided. But this is, of course, impossible. And Ivan told me it was this complicated relationship with the outside world that he wanted to capture with his camera. Well, you see, there is a kind of um, uh, contradiction um, in this question of separation. Like, one hand, they are really, really separated, and they avoid an outer world, and that is true. Uh, on, on another hand, they are really... I know highly interested in what's going on around, like what's going on in the world. In fact, they travel quite a lot because it's a big group of people. It's like 12 million and they are all over the world. They know their relative pretty well. And quite, quite often they travel to, to visit them to some other countries or some other continents. And finally finishing this uh, story, finishing this uh, book, 
watching some young people in in the city just outside i once i had realized that uh, all believers how say are much more um wise in everyday behavior much more agreeable and soft you know than than contemporary city people they are not rejecting so much and mostly they are positive to what is coming to them from outside that was that was kind of something special for me to understand something new and you can you can feel it quite at once i should say now let's talk about photography in the old believers can you talk about how that's for in many communities a taboo and how you were able to make this work you just come up uh, to people and you try to i don't know you try to set up kind of relations with them uh you let them get used to you you are coming the same places the same people year after year and finally they start to to recognize you and um uh one certain moment you you have a feeling uh you you can start taking pictures and i always was asking i never do did pictures in like in secret now you see first, first i was going after uh after people after the way they behave after the way they relate to each other and things like this which shows the um, difference itself somehow which you probably can see uh, in the pictures there is certainly a difference you can see in avant's pictures and this difference shows up in his landscapes his portraits and especially the ceremonial baptism which ivan was somehow allowed to photograph and this image you are speaking about <clears throat> it, it is a picture which uh, depicts the very moment of baptizing uh when she's taking a little baby out of the water and the image is taking from the water me myself i was up to the nose in in this little pond i don't know it's very t- tender i think it's uh, it's showing a lot how how touchy is the moment for her for this uh, old lady and how she's involved and how she's related to this uh, little baby who is like newborn for them and i don't know the whole the whole story and the picture probably something special one of the things that's most interesting about ivan's photos is that they're taken just after the fall of the soviet union an exciting time when everything was different but it looks like the old believers could care less from what i have seen it didn't really affect them much it's what i tell you they are really cut cut away from the world and especially some i don't know political or social changes they are really very much inside of their uh vision inside of uh, i don't know texts they are interested in some writings i don't know some prayers some uh, people they they know or people they are related to and they are really pretty far uh, from political changes it is strange to hear but it is true i would say they they live what they used to live before in this other world
The demise of the Soviet Union may have been just another day for the old believers, but for Russian underground photographers and artists, it was the end of the world as they knew it. You see, the Soviets only had one kind of official art, socialist realism. Everything else was non-conformist or non-official art. And in the late 1980s, when everything became permissible, the boundaries that defined this underground art melted into history. The largest collection in the world of Soviet-era non-conformist art is actually housed in New Jersey at the Zimmerle Museum at Rutgers University. I took a tour of the archive with curator Julia Tulovsky. So this uh, humongous collection, which is actually the largest and the most comprehensive collection of uh, Russian contemporary art in the world, uh, was uh, gathered by a man called Norton Dodge, who was a professor of economics and who uh, went to Russia because he was researching the role of women in Soviet economy. Uh, and the role of women, as you can imagine, was pretty substantial because there was just lack of men. So they had to stand in. He figured out that there should be some kind of other art than socialist realism. And uh, he went on a quest to uh, actually find out about this art. And it was a special detective story, how he made his connections and how he uh, had to get rid of this, if his KGB tail to get to Arcee Studios. At the end, he was a wholesale collector. He, and he was one of the first who supported the artist, both morally and uh, also financially, because they couldn't uh, sell their works. And also, very little people uh, from outside their narrow circles actually were interested in their uh, art. So the collection is really an encyclopedic, and uh, it, uh, it represents art from both capitals, Moscow and St. Petersburg, as well as uh, most of the Soviet republics. And in uh, um, all media, uh, sculpture, painting, sculpture, graphic art, and we have a very large holding of photography, uh, you know, over, over 3,000 pieces of in variety of styles, and uh, from documentary to art photography. Uh, and basically, we have a representation of everything that was produced. Including photography books. I, I noticed in, in the book that, that brought me here, uh, in the catalog, Beyond Memory, there were some uh, examples of, of photography books, sometimes produced by the artists themselves, and, and I was hoping you could, you could show me some of these. Well, absolutely. Uh, I have a couple of examples here uh, in front of me. Uh, one is done by Andrei Monastirsky. And it's a book uh, that uh, has the, um, you know, the, uh, as a cover, it has uh, the package, package of photography paper, uh, which is very recognizable. And then inside of it, there are uh, small photographs glued onto the pages of uh, cityscapes, of Moscow cityscapes, seen probably from the window, uh, with the poetry uh, typewritten poetry underneath that would uh, illustrate the photograph photographic images, and so uh, this is a you know a, a particular example of um, an art artist book, but also it is um, resembles of a, a culture that is called samizdat, because you couldn't really 
publish officially. So in order to, to do so, uh, the, the whole uh, culture of Samizdat, Samizdat means uh, self-published, but self-published with very, you know, with the, the mediums that, that are available, so basically typewritten texts, uh, amateur photographies, illustrations. Uh, and that was a very, very um, important genre, I would say. As uh, you probably know, in the Soviet Union only one style was allowed officially, and it was called socialist realism. And socialist realism style um, was the style uh, where you're supposed to portray in a very realistic manner the achievements of Soviet people or proclaim, uh, you know, glorify the leaders of the Communist Party. Of course, this was very limiting for artists. It does seem that with, you know, Soviet realism being like the official art, it does seem strange, you know, that photography never sort of was glorified as part of that. Couldn't you really glorify the, the fatherland with photography? Oh, absolutely. The, the, the fatherland was glorified with photography, and the photography was a, was a very a strong propaganda medium that was published in journals and newspapers. And there were very, um, you know, there were policies on photography and fashions, uh, on official photography that, you know, that in the 30s, they, they did stage photography, and then in the 50s, they decided to go and, and shoot the real life uh, in a certain way, of course. So, so absolutely, that was, it was a very, very strong propaganda tool. And in fact, some of unofficial uh, artists um, took on this uh, propaganda tool in their art, uh, converting it, you know, shifting the accents to make a joke out of it. <laughs> For example, uh, an image like this, this is a, a photograph um, in which uh, you see an office space and of course there's a Lenin portrait on the wall which was mandatory for uh, every office space and you see people in the gas masks working in the office. And, uh, and they seem to be just a regular working day and they are just sitting in their gas masks. And maybe it's a matter of training, of a drill. Um, uh, but the, such absurdities, uh, th there are a lot of them in the Soviet photography, Soviet, even documentary photography. Uh, and um, so it's, it's a very uh, big topic and a very, very funny theme how uh, this uh, absurd situation were happening all over without even people noticing them. And so the photographers were the ones who recorded and documented them for, uh, for us. For <laughs> In a way, it comes out to be back full circle Soviet realism, but not the one you're supposed to see. Soviet surrealism. <laughs> Can, can, can you talk about, though, how uh, photography was especially kind of ignored? It seemed like that photography, you know, on one hand, a lot of people would argue it wasn't even really art. Well, the photography uh, was not taught in art schools at all, uh, starting from 1930s. So um, there were, um, uh, in, uh, from 1950s, there was, uh, um, it was basically taught through a, a chain of art clubs. 
uh, and uh, photography art clubs and, and just you know clubs in general was after hours activities that was um, imposed on the Soviet citizens by the authorities. But the photography clubs played a great role because they actually prepared very good photographers. And so the amateur photography was much more creative and in a way uh, professional and, and much more diverse than the official photography that uh, all was only um, directed towards photojournalism. So what was then the official Soviet you know, regulations and rules for artists, including photographers, who wanted to do non-official art? What was, like, the policy? Well, the, the, the policy was that they had to uh, glorify Soviet people and Soviet achievements. And everything beyond that was questionable. However, there were uh, ways to, you know, include some of the uh, works in the exhibitions. And there, in photography was a little bit different, a little bit more free than the, uh, than the other arts. And it was, I think, a little bit less... Uh, censored and um, also uh, photo photography exhibitions often included together amateur photographers and uh, professional photographers the situation that would be uh, really uh, impossible for uh, visual art because it's very difficult to imagine an exhibition with official and unofficial artists together that they were different clans and so uh, photography, uh, f many photographers were uh, part of, the, of these clubs that were um, directed to photograph, say, the activities of a plant or, or a factory. And then they used these uh, photographs to create their independent artworks. This was a very uh, common practice. For example, one of the um, most important photographers, or I would should say artist working with photography, Boris Mikhailov, uh, was exactly that. He started uh, his you know, interest in photography when he, uh, you know, he, he photographed an after-hours activity of, of a plant where he worked. For example, on this image, there is a, originally it was a, a photograph of the women's gymnastic club. And uh, we see here uh, girls in their 50s, you know, a bit, a bit chubby, very happily and overtly without any shyness, um, participating in their, uh, the competitions that is uh, in their gymnastic club. But what Mikhailov does, he colors this image and uh, very inaccurately and deliberately so. So it almost looks like a folk image, folk engraving. And by doing this, he brings out the absurdity again of, of the situation, when, because these women don't really look like gymnasts at all. Um, and so, so there is a great irony, and this was one of this, his devices. And in general, uh, what he, Mikhailov 
is interested in, in people in the social condition and there's the, the social arrangements in which they exist and in the, the social types. And by shifting a little bit the the reality uh, by color, by you know overexposure, by the the, the color of paper, by their, this artistic means, he brings out their underlying social truth. So how did these artists get to develop, you know, without having such a access to an audience? Develop their careers, their sensibilities. You know, it's, 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 it just seems so strange to imagine that you could be devoting so much time to your art, but yet, you know, only your small circle of friends or some crazy American who would come <laughs> to, you know, find your art, you know, once a couple of years. You know, you didn't really have access to an audience. Or, am, or is that not correct? Well, you didn't have access to wide audience, but uh, the professional photography circles were pretty developed, especially because of the clubs. And uh, also in terms of art in general, uh, there was a network, uh, you know, gypsy mail, <laughs> network of people who would come to so-called apartment exhibitions. Uh, but because photography was a little bit of freer uh, art, uh, they even got to exhibit their, their work, um, you know, some of them publicly, and especially uh, Baltic states were, first of all, they were very good in, um, in, uh, in developing this, this art, but also they uh, did exhibitions of um, art photography. So and since they were so looked down upon in the hierarchy of art, they actually had more freedom. Yes, they had more freedom, and also Baltic states uh, historically had more freedom uh, comparing to, say, Moscow and, the, and you know, Central, um, because they, they were um, on the periphery, and they always enjoyed more freedom in, in every um, part, you know, every, every genre of art, uh, photography, uh, painting, everything. Do you have uh, anything from the Baltic uh, part of the collection for photography you want, you want, we Absolutely. could look at? Let me find it. Here's an image by Alexander Slusarev, and uh, Slusarev's style is, uh, it is, uh, you know, straightforward, so-called straightforward art photography, and he uh, plays with light and shadow and how it is arranged uh, on, the, uh, on an image. And basically, uh, he brings out uh, kind of un the other layer of reality because his work uh, looks almost like an abstract composition, and yet it is recognizable. This book all, uh, called Beatles, and this is by a, a toadstool group, Muhammor group, which is toadstool in Russian. And this is about, um, Beatles was very popular uh, in Russia. And uh, it was identified with cool guys. Listening to Beatles was really, really cool. So this, this is the book with uh, gluten photographs and handwritten text about the walk of two young guys around town who, was, who are basically walking around town and uh, singing Beatles uh, tunes <laughs> and photographing themselves. Can we look through one? Sure. This is, this, an, this this is an amazing book. This one says, for example, 
um, sometimes I say to my friend Kostya, you are such a Beatles. <laughs> and, then, and then the next photograph, the signage under the next photograph is just abdub dub 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 It's a tune. So these are just guys, two cool guys. Two cool guys singing big Beatles all along. <laughs> and nothing else. They just uh, can express themselves through these tunes even without words. Because, I don't know, they're either they're in English or they just don't bother <laughs> to sing them. <laughs> and they're just marching around town singing uh, these tunes and photographing themselves. That's such an amazing book. And it's, what is the exact title of this one? Beatles. <laughs> Surprisingly enough. <laughs> That's amazing. That is such a cool book. Wow. <laughs> Wow, so what were the risks? Like if the art police got a hold of this Beatles book? Well, they would probably consider it just a joke, just, you know, not serious art anymore because people listened to Beatles. They were uh, uh, so-called rock on bones uh, because they would make the recording on the X-rays films and uh, listen to, to them. So it was pretty... Uh, common to for for young cool guys to listen to Beatles, although they couldn't buy it probably, <laughs> but they could make their own records. So uh, and besides, uh, the the fact that uh, something is forbidden makes it much more interesting and much more cool for you, for you to participate in it. So there is this moment too. Was there any fear? When Perestroika really became that, that was going to get lost. I mean, I, I'm with you. It's just, it seems that the forbidden is such an essential line of demarcation around all this art. You know, the forbidden is so present in everything, even even if you know the risks might be greater in some cases. But the forbidden is so central. What sort of happened? You know, when the forbidden sort of started to recede, what happened to a lot of these art artists? After Perestroika? Yeah, or just when the forbidden started to just dissolve. This is a very interesting question uh, because um, the the situation of forbidden uh, pro conveyed very um, the, the 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 point uh, from which you count. You know, they were very clear. This is good. This is this is bad. They they prioritize. The, and when everything um, was possible after perestroika became possible, then um, I think many lost their uh, orientation. So uh, I discussed this with an art the artist Leonid Sokov, who also immigrated uh, to New York. And uh, he told me that when he immigrated, that was a big question for him, what now? Who and he had to realize that he is a Russian uh, artist. He um, has Russian culture in him and the Soviet culture in him. And so, in order to create sincere work that would be interesting, uh, he he has to uh, base uh, the, the works on this on his legacy, his Soviet legacy, whatever. He has to be himself, basically. Uh, because then, uh, even if the work comes from different culture, if it's sincere and well-tuned, it will be interesting and understandable for all audiences.
It was very kind of Julia Tulofsky to let me fondle so many of the photo books in the Dodge collection. And while I do die a little every time I think about how I will probably never own a copy of that Beatles book, I am consoled knowing that a lot of the collection is on continuous display at the Zimmerly Museum. Next time you're in the neighborhood, stop by and check it out for yourself. Also, I did pick up a few really great photo books on my Russia visit. At first, I thought the trip was going to be a wash because as surprising as it sounds, there are no photo bookstores in Moscow. Nothing like what you find in New York. No printed matter, no Dashwood books. Some of the art galleries have photo books, but in most cases, they're the same Toshin and Steidl books you find everywhere. Moscow's out-of-control real estate market is to blame. At least, that's what I was told. But I assure you, I looked everywhere, and I asked every single person I met. But I got nothing. Well, that's not exactly true. One afternoon, my gypsy cab driver hooked me up with a great photo book. He spoke a little English, and so I asked him if he knew where I could find some photo books. And he pulled over and grabbed something from a street peddler. It was a catalog of Russian prostitutes organized by Metrostop, complete with pull-out maps and centerfold-like portraits. The printing is extremely good, full color, nice paper, great graphic design, square bound, about 350 pages. A truly unique book. I had better luck in St. Petersburg. At an outdoor junk market called Unona, I found what is probably one of the greatest photo books now in my library. It's a self-published volume of photos documenting the bitch wars that were fought in the Soviet gulag in the 1940s and early 1950s. During World War II, many Russian criminals were offered a new chance at life if they served in the Red Army to fight the Nazis. After the war, many returned to their old ways and ended up back in the gulag. But they were not viewed as heroes by their former comrades, the Vori. They were instead branded Suki, or bitch. You see, there was really only one rule for the thieves' code, and that was do not do anything for the man. And as honorable as defending the motherland from the Nazis might sound to us, the Vori saw it as an affront to the thieves' code. And from 1946 to 1953, the bitch wars were fought in the camps and prisons of the Gulag. Thousands and thousands of Vori and Suki were killed. There are many speculations as to the causes and reasons behind the bitch war. Some believe that Stalin used the bitches to wipe out the Vori. And some believe that the Vori just didn't want to share the little they had with the returning bitches. But there's no doubt about who won the war. The code of the bitches was just better suited to the modern age. Because when it's permissible to work for the man, it's then possible to become the man. In fact, many scholars see the origins of contemporary Russia in the bitch war.
It's not clear who took the photos in the book I found. Perhaps it was a prison guard or a doctor. The photos do have a documentary clinical sense to them, even the battle scenes. In the photos, you can tell the Vori from the Suki by their elaborate tattoos. But after a while, all the mutilated and mangled bodies start to look the same. And even though the photos are in black and white, there's so much blood, the pages almost have a red aura. As I've said before, my library is always open to the public. And you, my dear listener, are welcome anytime. Just drop me a line. intense and I've been working really long hours. I, I would I don't know if I'd say it was bad, but I've just been like super busy. It's just been all work. So it was really nice to just finally go to a barbecue, hang out, and have a couple beers, have a couple burgers, you know, and just take it easy. It was also great to just not be around only the people I work with. I mean I, I like all those people and stuff, but they're really the only people that I'd seen all summer. So it was nice to just be around some new people. There were, you know, actually some people that I hadn't met before and that kind of stuff. And, and just to talk about something different that wasn't work-related, which was really nice. Random stuff. Like we ended up talking about movies and, and just stuff like that. You know, so what's, what was the big summer blockbuster movies? Uh, we talked about that for a while. What, what have you even seen this summer? See, I haven't seen anything. So it was just at least someone has seen them. You know, so I heard about Inception. Like, I saw the I saw the ads for it. It looked pretty cool. I it's not like that great. It. I, I not, downloaded it. I forgot I, I forgot about what it was about by the time I was done watching it. And, really? Oh, yeah. And I, and I said to myself, you know, at least I didn't waste $14 on it. I mean, the, the picture was a little fuzzy. It was one of those cam recordings but like someone went into the movie theater and, and recorded it with the camcorder yeah but you know I, I i got the basic gist of it i i completely forgot what it was about though well it's interesting this guy that i was talking to just thought it was the best thing he'd ever seen yeah th- this guy was clearly a moron well yeah and we talked about inception for a while but get this the thing he really wanted to talk about was red dawn no yeah this guy was totally pissed off that Red Dawn hasn't come out yet. Whoa. Yeah, I know. Like, he says he says this to me, and he's, like, staring right at me, and I'm thinking, like, wait, is is he messing with me? You know, I mean, I'm, in a, I'm at my CIA buddy's party. You know, I don't know. You know, uh, all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, does this guy know who I am? I'm, like, really taken aback at this point. Oh, man. But he was just some guy... <laughs> 
that's really into Red Dawn. And he, he just jumps right in my face and was like, you know, it's this movie was supposed to come out in June. It's gotten pushed back because the goddamn liberals in Hollywood don't want to see a movie about like true American heroes and fighting back against these yellow red commie bastards. And like at this point, dude, like hamburgers flying out of his mouth. He's spilling his beer all over the place. He's like, God damn it, you know, Wolverines! And he's spilling beer everywhere and everybody's just kind of taking cover. This guy's completely lost his shit. Just because Red Dawn hasn't come out. Just because Red Dawn hasn't come out, right? It's a, it, in, his, in his mind, it's this big liberal plot. It's Obama, it's healthcare. I mean, every, you know, all of that stuff is to blame for shutting down this movie that's supposed to be you know, a clarion call to all Americans to, to this guy's mind. So what did you say to him? You know, what do you say to that? <laughs> I just grabbed my beer, I raised it up, and I said, Wolverines, dude. Toasted them and then just kind of drifted off. Ran away? Yeah, it was a slow runaway, but it was a runaway. <laughs> <laughs> It was a stroll away. So I get about 15 feet away, get to the fence, and I just kind of like hang on to the fence. I'm just going to chill for a second kind of gather my thoughts, figure out like how I'm going to not talk to this guy ever again for the rest of the party. And I look down, and there is this Chinese midget smiling at me. I take a swig of my beer and I'm just thinking, here we go again. This is going to get weirder. And sure enough, I look down at the guy and immediately he says, I will tell you the truth about Red Dawn. <laughs> oh, man. He's, he says to me, the real reason that Red Dawn is not released is not because of the liberals and i'm like yeah i know like that guy's crazy and besides that i heard that it was just because mgm ran out of money so they couldn't put it out this summer and he says oh yes but why are they out of money so i say i don't know because they make bad investments and make shitty movies like pink panther 2 you saw that no. Did you see it? <laughs> no. Has anybody seen it? No, I don't think This is so. why MGM is broke. <laughs> this is what I was thinking. But then this little guy says, Ah, but who owns MGM? And I said, I guess you're going to tell me the Chinese own MGM. And he nodded his head and said, Yes. So then this guy proceeds to basically tell me, that the Chinese have bought out MGM and they are blocking the release of the movie through, through their financial means because they don't want the American people to be prepared for their invasion. So it's not the Russians who are going to invade but the Chinese. I, I guess at this point, it's whoever gets here first. Hey, 
Historians will probably never cease to argue over what exactly transpired in the bunker beneath the Chancellery during those last days of the Third Reich. But now, with the release of the final papers of Operation Myth, that infamous 1946 Soviet investigatory report, there is no longer any need to speculate over what it was that Hitler, Eva Braun, and Dr. Goebbels were reading during their final days. When it becomes clear that the siege isn't going to end anytime soon, Hitler orders a box of the classics of high German literature to be brought down into the bunker. But somehow, the box gets switched with a carton of books from the 1939 decadent art show. Hitler ends up with an entire box full of books and magazines written by Jews and homosexuals. Hitler is furious, but there's nothing he can do. The Soviets are closing in, and there's no one who can be spared to look for a missing box full of Goethe and Holderlin. But Hitler desperately wants something to read. So on April 25th, he breaks down and begins rummaging through the box, hoping that maybe he can find something that isn't entirely Jewish or gay. But to his dismay, he discovers that his dog has been using the box as a toilet. Now Hitler is really furious. He takes the box outside and empties the books onto the rubbish heap. He's so mad, he almost doesn't notice the slim volume that has somehow escaped his canine's bowel movements and urinary excretions. It's a copy of the 1936 Zeitschrift für Social a journal published by a bunch of German-Jewish intellectuals living in exile. The journal contains one long essay entitled The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction by Walter Benjamin. It's most definitely something Hitler would never choose to read on his own, but beggars can't be choosers, so Hitler brings the journal back into the bunker and shows it to Goebbels. Goebbels is aghast when he hears the Fuhrer say that he'd like the two of them to sit and read and discuss Walter Benjamin's essay together. Do you know who Walter Benjamin is? Goebbels shouts. No, Hitler says. I don't. Walter Benjamin was a Jewish intellectual who left Germany when the Nazis came to power. He wrote essays about decadent writers like Proust, Kafka, Baudelaire, and Bertolt Brecht. He hated the Nazis, and he wrote hideous things about them from his perch in Paris. When the French capital was finally sacked, the Gestapo seized his apartment and discovered essays on everything from Donald Duck to hashish. Walter Benjamin himself committed suicide on the Spanish border on September 26, 1940, when it became apparent that he would be turned over to the Nazis for lack of a French exit visa. Goebbels pleads with Hitler to throw the essay on the rubbish heap where it belongs, but Hitler is adamant, and so on the night of April 30th, the two sit down together and begin reading the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Walter Benjamin's essay begins with the thesis that the mechanically reproduced work of art is something radically different from the reproduced art of the past. He says it makes no sense to speak of originals when discussing photographs or films, for the relationship between the photograph and the negative is totally different than the relationship between the painting and the copy. But what Benjamin finds most interesting about this new relationship 
is the disintegration of the aura and the authenticity of the work of art. So far, so good. Hitler's able to follow along. But, he asks his minister of propaganda, is Benjamin arguing that this disintegration is a good thing? Yes, Ripple says. Benjamin believes that the aura and the authenticity inherent in traditional works of art are what keep them firmly in the possession of the elites and what's allowed oppressive ideologies to control them. And, Goebbels explains, Benjamin believes that the artworks of the future, the ones that will evolve from new media, will, by lacking aura and authority, not only have the power to emancipate themselves from control, but will assist in the emancipation of the masses as well. But how, Hitler asks. He's starting to think that reading this essay wasn't such a hot idea after all. Well, for example, Goebbels says, Benjamin believes the film is one of these new artworks, and he believes that film is something that by lacking an aura and an authority will expand the mind of the audience to the point where the audience will one day relate to the film in a way that allows it to think beyond the commodity value of artistic experience. Benjamin believes that in the future, the audience will cease to be merely the receiver of cultural meaning, but will instead become an empowered producer of cultural meaning. But that's dreadful, Hitler exclaims. That goes against everything I stand for. And to think I let you make all those movies. Goebbels rolls his eyes. My fear. Benjamin is wrong. I am your minister of propaganda. Trust me, I know all about the production of meaning, and I know all about the mechanicals of reproduction, and I tell you, this Jew is wrong. His argument is completely flawed, for the media that he believes will deliver the world from fascism are themselves the instruments of fascism. I mean, where does he think these films come from? The Moscow Central Planning Committee? But... Goebbels, Hitler says, it doesn't matter if they're instruments of fascism or instruments of socialism. The point is that they sow the idea that authority is something that does not have to be taken seriously, but rather something open to interpretation. Oh God, Goebbels, Hitler moans, think of our children. What will become of them? They will have no respect for authority or tradition. I can see it now. Little blonde German boys and girls marching through the streets, demanding that they be taken seriously as producers of meaning. It's just dreadful. Dreadful. No, no, mein Fuhrer. Goebbels pounds his fist on the table. Benjamin is wrong. The production of meaning will always be controllable. And if the youth want to believe that there's something empowering in the watching of films, so be it. They should be allowed to deceive themselves, especially if it means they will forget about the real mechanisms of control, the means of production itself. Mind Fuhrer, I don't want to boast, but I believe I've shown the world that total control of media is indeed possible. People are sheep, and they will always be sheep. And if they want to believe this empowerment cock and bull, so be it. It will only make our job easier. But Hitler is not convinced. <laughs>
He stays up all night weeping over Walter Benjamin's ideas and their seeming inevitability. And in the morning, he paints a final watercolor, and then he puts a gun into his mouth and blows out the back of his skull. Goebbels spends the following day writing a scathing response to Walter Benjamin. He explains in detail how film is at its core a fascist art form and how naive it is to believe, as Benjamin does, that film can emancipate the masses. Far from it, the film will guarantee their eternal enslavement. He describes his vision of the future. Millions and millions of captivated spectators all watching a screen upon which his descendants project images of fairies and sugar plums. Oh, the magnificent aura of the film. Goebbels spends all day on his essay, but when night falls, he realizes that it is unfortunately a total betrayal of his profession, so he burns the manuscript in the fireplace. Then he kills his wife Magda and his six daughters, and finally, with a flourish befitting a man of his stature, he takes his own life. This episode of Too Much Information is called Black and White and Red All Over. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen and Laura Mayer, and featured Bruce Gilden, Yvonne Boyko, Julia Tulofsky, and Chris. There's tons of links and images on the TMI show page at WFMU.org, and that's where you can subscribe to the TMI podcast as well. <laughs> <laughs>